It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about our mission to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. In this episode, who has not suffered from customer no service? I mean, do you go through a week without having customer no service? So how do you effectively complain and resolve a problem? Well, I got to tell you, people are so frustrated by this that a new company has started a new service to help you resolve problems and wait till you hear their name. And later, do you have items in your closet, sitting in a garage that are just gathering dust, maybe even since you bought them? Well, I'm going to discuss buyer's remorse and what you should be thinking about with how you handle your money. So, customer no service is something that I saw a poll result recently in an AP story that two-thirds of Americans, two-thirds of Americans report feeling raged about the way they were treated or, in their opinion, mistreated by a company. This is something that's a universal You know, I've been using the phrase customer no service for 25 years. And I have people come up to me and they say, hey, I got customer no service from blah, blah, blah. They use it as a phrase now because it's one that people can identify with and tap into. So I was particularly fascinated when I was contacted by a reporter with the Washington Post News Service who was writing a story about a a new company called Karen's for Hire. I feel bad for people's name. Yeah, it's terrible for people named Karen. But anyway, this is like a shout, a scream from the American people that there would be a place in the marketplace for a company called Karen's for Hire. Interestingly enough, I was interviewed by this reporter for this story, and we were talking about the ways people complain how they're effective at it, how you get results. And what really comes through is that there is no one right tactic or method to try to get a problem resolved. The one thing that doesn't work, and this is something interesting, the people who founded Karen's for Hire, they say they had a lot of people applying for jobs who were people who just were angry kind of enraged people and they were like no 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 that's not what we're hiring it's just it's just a marketing term we're hiring people who know how to effectively solve a problem and they're polite people and patient people and that sort of thing polite persistent patient that's right and we talk about that a lot and also there is no silver bullet you know there was a period of time probably five six years ago that companies woke up to the reputational harm from social media. I was talking a lot years ago about how effective that was when customer no service was ignoring you at a company or not solving a problem that you could post on social media and bam, problems you had been unable to resolve for days or weeks suddenly were getting solved. And today, that doesn't work anymore. The success rate of filing a complaint on social media is down to like under 20% now. It has lost 
its effectiveness because so many people, wisdom of the crowd, so many people started using that as a way to try to get a company to wake up and pay attention that now companies have become numb to it for the most part and they're just suffering the reputational harm. So when you have a problem and you're trying to solve it, you think about when I'm answering a question about it, how many different directions I go that are situational and that no one thing helps. I remember how many times there have been circumstances where I might have mentioned filing a complaint with the Better Business Bureau, and then we'll hear from somebody, that didn't work at all. I tried that, and it did nothing. And this is the important thing. You've got to be flexible in how you use the tools available to you. I've talked about Elliott Advocacy, which is a longstanding consumer nonprofit that teaches people how to advocate for themselves in a small number of circumstances will do the advocacy. I've talked about our own advocacy organization, our Team Clark Consumer Action Center. There are multiple things you try. You don't focus on one particular thing. But the overriding thing, you mentioned the polite persistence. Never, 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 not ever, no matter how fed up you are, ever unload on somebody you're talking to on a phone call at customer no service, someone you are messaging at a company, you're posting on social media, rage does not work. You put everybody in a defensive position and anybody dealing with you very quickly, even if your problem is a legitimate one that this company has caused, they decide you're the problem, not the problem you're having. So it requires not a clear path, but a fuzzy one, how you solve a problem you're having with a company. And you try as many of these strategies as possible. One that I find is still often effective, not writing the CEO of a company, not complaining to the CEO of a company. But finding out at the operational level, who are these unknown vice presidents, assistant vice presidents, whatever their title is in an organization, that are over whatever it is you're having a problem with, they don't normally have the level of gatekeepers that surround a CEO or a president of an organization. So all these tools, all these techniques can help, and you never know which one pushes the button that solves a problem. Last thing, be very specific what you want to solve your problem. Do not just complain and be careful what you ask for. If in your anger and frustration, you ask for way too much, you're going to end up with little or nothing. Krista? Speaking of customer no service, Cynthia in North Carolina wrote in, says, I moved from Atlanta to Charlotte back in May. I paid close to $8,000 for the move at that time. Now I just received a bill in the mail from the movers stating that I owe another $1,200. 
Their letter states that their accounting department recently completed an audit, and based on the weight and services performed, this is the amount that is still due, and I must pay within 30 days or pay 1% service charge for each additional 30 days past the due date. Can they do this? Sending me a bill seven months after my move seems ridiculous. How should I handle this? I used what I thought was a reputable moving company. Okay, so a couple of things. I want you to go to moving.org and file a complaint against the mover there. Under federal law, this was a state-to-state move. Obviously, if they're billing you this, it was called a non-binding estimate you were originally given. A mover is allowed to bill you up to 10% extra. In your case, that would be $800, but they must do so within 30 days of the move under federal law. They are outside the bounds of the law, and you can look up your rights. There's a federal agency, an obscure one nobody knows about, that's part of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Look up the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. What a lame name. You look that up, and you'll see the rules that a mover on a state-to-state move must follow, and you'll see that they are outside bounds with an outside 30-day bill. Also, the amount is outside bounds. Also, at moving.org, you'll be able to see this is a legitimate company. They will be part of the trade association of legitimate movers. You will be able to see how to file a complaint there as well against this mover. The important thing for you to do with the thing of saying they're going to increase penalties and all the rest is you need to answer them by regular mail and certified mail and state things from the motor carrier safety, blah, 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 I talked about a minute ago, to them, and you will get this bill removed because they are outside the bounds of federal law at this point. Maybe file a BBB complaint too? You could. I think it's better to go through moving.org in this case. This goes back to the last thing. Just hit all the angles. You you have to have different tools, but I think through moving.org, you'll be able to get this potentially resolved, and also through what you do with writing them back and citing the federal law, they'll almost certainly leave you alone at that point. Joseph in New York says, Clark, you had someone write in about room safe charges in their hotel invoice. I had a similar experience when recently checking out from a hotel stay. When checking in, I was told there was a daily fee for parking. I explained that I didn't have a car with me. When checking out, I was told there were incidentals on my invoice that would be billed through my credit card. I asked for an explanation of the charges. They had included parking and room service. I told them I didn't use either service. The parking was removed, but I was told the room service included two meals I would need to pay for. I didn't use room service. Asked for this to be looked into while I waited. It turned out the room above mine had their orders billed to my room in an error. The charges were removed, but I'm sure it would have been a more difficult process had I not waited at the desk for this to be corrected before leaving the hotel. Okay, Joseph, you just stated the most important thing about a hotel stay. You cannot solve most hotel problems once you're gone from that hotel. You did exactly the right thing. And this is a continual problem with turnover in hotel staffing. Right now, shortages of hotel staffing in full-service hotels, you will have continual clerical errors where you're billed for things you're not supposed to have. Now, I 
follow a never rule. I never, ever, not ever order from room service. Does not happen. I would have to be really sick in bed before I'd order from hotel room service. And I find probably one in 10 hotel stays, I'm billed for room service. And I go through the same thing you did. Always go through that hotel bill before you leave a hotel, because once you're gone from there, getting it resolved, your odds are extremely low. And remember, they have your credit card on file. They put through that charge. You're then having to do a dispute with the credit card and on and on and on. Who wants to have to do all that? And from Kevin in Tennessee, I love your show. I love your life story. You're such a positive, high energy guy. I listen to your show, including the YouTube format. Does Costco carry any other color than black? It's so depressing. It's such a depressing color, normally associated with mourning a death. Please get another color in your wardrobe to match your bubbly personality. This blackout has got me mourning your choice of shirt colors that should be resurrected in a more positive color. So it's, <laughs> there's a few things you should know. First of all, I couldn't afford the black shirts from Costco. This is Sam's Club's private label, Members Mark. I got them when they were on clearance for $6.91. I have a row of them in my closet. What happens is I do so much video content and sometimes things from that I've shot on one day or then put together with something from another day. And it's for continuity. We don't have the resources to have a, what's known as a continuity manager or a director or whatever who makes sure that your attire is always matching up. And so it's something I learned years ago in television is that if you're going to wear a golf shirt, wear the same color every day. And the default when you do that is black. And I'm sorry that this color bothers you but think of it this way we're all about protecting your wallet and when your wallet is in the black that means you're on the good side you have money you don't owe money that would be red so if i was wearing red every day i would be encouraging you to be in deficit in your wallet so let's look at that as a positive idea we could do green all the time. I know. We've got green but then background. It might yeah. Conflict with our wonderful thing behind us here. So I'm, I'm sorry that the black does bother you. Maybe someday Costco will have a stylish black golf shirt that I will spend the money on. And I did say something that I'm not supposed to say. I said I couldn't afford. Oh, yeah. Which, which I already. Clark stinks. Yeah, there was Clark stinks about that. So it's that I choose not to spend more money since this member's mark shirt wears very well and was very cheap at $6.90. I have to quickly remind you, um, when you did a show for HLN years ago, they went out and bought you black oh, shirts me. from Banana Republic, as if I they recall. They were $68 a shirt. And so one day I come in for video production for HLN, and they have this new row of shirts for me because they hated I was wearing these uh, Walmart faded glories that were $5 and they had really faded and the collars looked bad and stuff. And so they bought me, there must've been 12 of them that were $68 each. And that was the shirt I had to wear every day. And I couldn't even think straight wearing such an expensive shirt. (laughs) Speaking of that, 
buyer's remorse. We're going to talk about when you buy something and you're later, well, I thought it was a good idea at the time. I want to talk about how that's happening to us so much more right now and why. We all do impulse purchases. It's part of us as humans. But the problem has actually intensified for two reasons. And we got to talk about this because I always refer back to the closet test. Are you familiar with the closet test? So when you go, and it's painful to do, you go open up as many closets as you have in your home, apartment, condo, townhouse, whatever, and you look through what's in there, and you look at all the things you don't use, clothing you don't wear, items you purchase that you haven't even opened. Am I talking to you? Maybe. So, why has the problem gotten worse of impulse buying? Because retailers, both online and physical retailers, are pushing instant credit so hard. You know, if you get a store credit today, we'll save you 20% on all your purchases today. I love it that somebody said the reason they love using self-checkout is because they don't have to hear the pitch for the instant in-store credit at the self-checkout. Now I've given retailers the idea to go add that to the self-checkout, to pop that up, and a voice comes out of the self-checkout, says, apply for instant credit right now. I wonder if any retailer is doing that. So the instant credit makes people feel like when they're saying, oh, you're going to get this discount, that people will buy things that they're on the bubble about buying. A lot of shopping decisions for things are emotional. They're impulsive. An impulse is treated strictly as a negative word. Impulse is not necessarily a negative. You can have impulses that work out great for you and those that don't work out so much. Shopping impulse is generally going to be a negative because you will make an instant emotional decision to buy something that turns out not to have a useful role in your life and reduces the money you have available to you. But there's something else. Instant store credit has been around for years. It's intensified in popularity. But the thing that's made buyer's remorse so much worse is the paying for. Retailers, both online and physical retailers, have found that paying for is a magic pill that pulls people in to buy things on impulse that later, overwhelmingly, they're going to regret. And then, as we've talked about, there are terrible problems when you want to return something to a store that you bought paying for. So know that this is a real, real, real serious problem. You just got to say no to pay in for. So many things are going wrong with pay in for. I mean, I could talk about why you stay away from pay in for all day long. Just trust me, pay in for is poison. You don't want to use it. Instant store credit is considered to be junk credit in the credit reporting industry. You don't want junk credit. And so, Use the avoidance of these two tools to avoid a lot of purchases you might make on an impulse 
that are going to lead later to buyer's remorse. Krista? All right. Barry in Alabama says, I used acorns.com to force me to save. They round up my purchases to the nearest dollar and then they put it into an account. However, they charge $3 per month, which is more than the interest I'm earning on the account. Is there some other institution or account which will round up my purchases to force me to save my change, which has a minimal or no fee? So the Bank of Barry is going to be very important here because you've had a pattern with acorns. You've used it to try to create a savings habit in your life. But as you pointed out, you're ending up with net less money in your hands than you started with because of the $36 a year junk fee that Acorns has. So here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to look back at what you've been putting into Acorns each month, just an average, and whatever number of dollars it is. I want you to take that amount plus $3 because remember, you're paying a $3 a month junk fee. So whatever it is, if it's $2, $10, $5, $20, whatever it is you're saving in Acorns, I want you to set up an automatic deposit into a savings account with an online bank. What you love about Acorns is it's an automatic effort to save. You can do the same thing now that you know your pattern and what you've been able to live your life without any harm to lifestyle with the money that's been going in there. Now you just set it up on your own, and the key is automatic. And so you set up that online account, you deposit into it automatically every month, you're able to effectively save 36 more dollars a year, and you'll be earning interest on the money, and you will have developed an automatic savings habit. So that way you avoid all fees, and you take the training wheels that Acorns has been to you, and you do it now on your own. And this is from Eric in Florida. My credit score is 816. I wow. Have, yeah. I have three credit cards, each with limits between twelve dollars to $25,000. I wanted to replace one of them with the city double cashback card you suggested. I was approved, but the limit was only $3,200, which is not sufficient to meet my needs. I spoke with the city and they said my only option was to use it. And after three to six months, they might increase it. Why do you suppose my limit was so very low? And what do you suggest I do to get it increased? So this is a common practice of Citibank to approve somebody for a card and based on their historical patterns where, I mean, look at your limits, twelve to 25000 they then issue you a city card with a much lower initial limit. Take them at their word. When I got city double cash, they did the same thing to me. They gave me relative to my other cards, they gave me a very low limit, almost like training wheels with the card. So use the card and six months from now, apply for the credit limit increase. And you're almost certainly based on your credit score, nearly 100%, you're going to be approved for that limit increase. And then there will be a period, it might be six months or a year later, you'll be able to apply for an increase again, and you'll be able to get up to the other cards. Banks right now are more nervous about available credit. Every time we trend line towards a recession, and as I've talked about, we may have a shallow recession, which means a, uh, not a terrible recession, but a recession, and people's default rates go up on credit. So the banks are becoming more careful, more stingy with credit limits 
but that was already a practice of Citibank with their cards. And you'll be fine over time because of your pre-existing credit standing and obviously how you use credit regularly. Wesley in Colorado says, I can't make the retirement math work. I save 17% of my pay. On average, I get an 8% raise every year. Assuming a 4% withdrawal rate at retirement, I need to save 200% of my pay to cover my annual raise. I have 18 times the income I need at retirement invested now and seven times my full pay. I don't understand how it will ever close the gap. I'm 61 years old. Am I missing something? What should I be saving every year? That was a lot of math right there. So the 4% withdrawal rate, I don't know if you're taking into effect into account what you'll earn from Social Security and any other sources of potential income you may have. If there's any pension of any size you may have, you don't have to use the money you're going to have from your investments to cover all life's expenses. But it's not all or nothing anyway. Let's say you have Social Security, you've accounted for that, 4% withdrawal rate still doesn't get you there. You are saving a significant amount of your pay it's 17% of your pay. That's a tremendous amount of your pay. So what is the alternative in retirement? You're 61. You want a bag working full-time in a few years. You can either, and this is not the end of the world, you can extend your work career a year or two, and that means that the number of years you have to cover with the funds you have saved and two more years of savings, you will effectively be able to potentially go beyond a 4% withdrawal rate because of the remaining life expectancy you'd have at that point. You could also look at retiring when you intend to from full-time work and you work part-time after that as a supplement to income because you'll have the money from Social Security, you'll have the money that you can draw on that you have built up over the years in your retirement plan at work. So, your situation of saving a substantial amount of money but feeling like you're still not there is potentially a very valid thing. But I'd like you to do one other thing as well. I'd like you to go meet with a Garrett Planning Network financial planner and pay him or her for some hours of their time to go over your goals, the money you have, your intended time to retirement, and see if you are on a realistic glide path at this point, or what modifications for your exact situation would make the most sense. Again, that's GarrettPlanningNetwork.com, which is a fiduciary planner, and they do a great job of helping people have a checkup and figure out what the future looks like for them. And so I'm just so glad they're out there. I also want to mention that today is Martin Luther King Jr.'s holiday honoring the birth of Dr. King, January 15th. Dr. King was a big influence in my life. He taught me real time as a young person that change was possible, but that many times it would require great courage. I'm old enough that I remember as a young kid, not really understanding it, but I remember things like when I'd ride the bus where people were allowed to sit 
I remember the segregated bathrooms. I remember the separate water fountains. Those are things that I did not read as history. I lived them. And it was the courage of this man who brought about enormous change in society and brought about justice in society and did so preaching the code of nonviolence. And so violently he lost his life at the young age of 39 for espousing love and it was answered with hate. History distorts uh, the recognition and remembrance of people. And he was a guy, you know, he was he was a flawed human being like we all are, but a man of enormous courage. And so that's why today is an important remembrance for me. And I hope you have a great day.